Welcome. You have discovered Season 2, Episode 25, of the 542 and the Blue Podcast. A podcast discussion of current and past law enforcement, crimes and punishment, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. Today in Paxville, South Carolina, at the Calvary Baptist Church Cemetery, there is a large dark tombstone to be found there. The stone reads simply, George Stinney Jr. October 21, 1929, June 16, 1944, wrongfully convicted, illegally executed by South Carolina. Today's Shade of Blue, discusses George Stinney, Jr.'s 14-year life and why it was so short. This is Victoria your producer, Scott, you are online now, too. One. Welcome to today's Shade of Blue story for 542 in the Blue. And thank you, Victoria, for the introduction. How young is too young to be executed for your crimes? Now, since 1642, an estimated 364 juvenile offenders have been put to death by the state, the colonies, or the federal government. The youngest person to be executed in the 20th century was George Steeny. We'll talk about his case, but that's still leaving us again with the question, how old do you have to be to be executed for the Supreme Court has determined that if you're under 19, you're not going to be executed. That is considered cruel and unusual punishment. So, and that brings us to uh, Mr. George Junius Stanley Jr., born October 21st, 1929, died at the hands of the state of South Carolina, June 16th, 1944. He was a young man that was convicted at the age of 14 of murdering two white girls, seven and 11 years old, in his hometown of Alcola, South Carolina. He was executed by electric chair in June of that year. After his conviction, the court refused to hear his appeal, and the appeals on his behalf to the governor for clemency were denied. He is the youngest American to be sentenced to death and executed. The re-examination of his case began in 2004 and a new trial was asked for after review of his case by the courts in South Carolina. His conviction was overturned in 2014, 70 years after he was executed. And that was when the court ruled that he had not received a fair trial. Now, the story behind this is going back to 1944. George's father worked in the town sawmill and the family resided in company housing. The community they lived in was small, it was a working class mill town, where white and black neighborhoods were separated by railroad tracks, hence the term the other side of the tracks. The town was typical small southern town at the time, uh, segregated schools and churches for black and white residents. There was also limited interaction between the two groups. Now, the bodies of Betty June Benneker, age 11, and Mary Thames, 
aged seven, were found in a ditch March 23, 1944, on the African-American side of the town during a search after they had not returned home the night before. George's father had actually helped in that search. The girls had been beaten with a weapon, according to the coroner, reported as a piece of blunt metal or a railroad spike. The girls were last seen riding their bicycles and looking for flowers. Reportedly, they had passed George's home and they had asked young George and his sister if they knew where to find some Maypops, which was uh, is a name for passion flowers. Now, according to a newspaper article dated March 24th, 1944, and published all over the United States, with the mistake, and now and and that particular article had actually misspelled George's name. The article stated the sheriff had announced the arrest and said that George had confessed and took his officers to a hidden piece of iron that was used to kill the girls. Then reports and newspapers differed as to the reporter's interpretations as to what the weapon had been used. According to the medical examiner, as I said previously, the wounds had been inflicted by a blunt instrument with a round head about the size of a hammer. Both girls' skulls had been punctured. This sounds a lot like a, a railroad spiked to me. The medical examiner reported no evidence of sexual assault to the younger girls, although the genitalia of the older girl was slightly bruised. Both George and his older brother, Johnny, were arrested on suspicion of murdering the girls. Johnny was released by the police, but George was held and wasn't allowed to see his parents until after the trial and after his conviction. According to a handwritten statement that was submitted to court, a county deputy stated, I arrested a boy by the name of George Steeny. He then made a confession and told me where to find a piece of iron about 15 inches long. He said he put in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. No confession statement was signed by George. The 14-year-old later claimed that to his parents that the arresting officers had starved him and then bribed him with food in order to get a confession from him. Now, George was reported to have gotten into fights at school, including a fight where he scratched or cut a girl with a knife. This came from uh, George's seventh grade teacher, who was also an African-American, but was later disputed by George's sister when it was reported in 1995. One woman who did testify in 2014 that she was familiar with from childhood with George, she testified that he had threatened to kill her and her friend the day before the murder and that he was known locally and in school as a bully. Now, following George's arrest, his father was fired from his job at the local sawmill. The family had to move out of their company housing immediately and they basically feared for their safety. The community as well as the police threatened to lynch them and their other children if they did not leave immediately. And again, his parents did not see George again before the trial. 
He had no support during his 81-day confinement, and he was detained at a jail in Columbia, 50 miles away from his home. He was questioned by himself without his parents or an attorney. Of course, this was before 1963 when Gideon versus Wainwright that required representation through the course of criminal proceedings. The entire court procedure against George, including jury selection, took only one day. His court-appointed defense was a Charles Plowden, a tax commissioner who was campaigning for election to the local office at the time. And he did not challenge any of the statements made by the officers, and he made no challenge to any of the evidence submitted by the state. The prosecution actually offered two different versions of his verbal confession. In one version, George was asked, George was attacked by the girls after he tried to help one of the girls who had fallen in a ditch, and he then killed them in self-defense. In another version, he had followed the girls, first attacking the younger girl and then the older young lady. There was no physical evidence linking him to the murders, and there is no written record of a confession apart from the very short statement written statement by deputy Newman the entire trial presentation of evidence lasted lasted just a little over two hours the jury took less than 10 minutes after which they returned a guilty verdict the judge sentenced George to death by electrocution there was no transcript of the trial no appeal was filed by his defense. Although his family and the NAACP for the state of South Carolina appealed to the governor, Governor Johnston, for clemency, given the age of the boy, others urged the governor to let the, given the age of the boy, asking for any type of assistance. Others contacted the governor and urged him to let the execution, the execution proceed, which is what he did. Between the time of his arrest and his execution, his parents were only allowed to see him once. George was executed at the South Carolina Central Correctional Institute in Columbia on June 16, 1944 at 7.30 p.m. One of the issues that was brought up in the trial or the revisiting of the trial in 2014 where his conviction was vacated, the defense brought up information of a possible deathbed confession from an individual who confessed to being the actual murderer of the girls. Now this confession has never been substantiated there's no other documentation other than it just being hearsay. True or not, we will never know, I would say. But what we do know for sure, two little girls 
and a little boy who was not much older than them all died in 1944 all at, apparently at different hands. Is the death penalty a valid punishment? Is it morally right to kill somebody for killing another person? There's a lot of opinions on that and I won't take a side only to offer this for your consideration. The death penalty is a way to ensure that a person convicted of killing someone will never kill again. Is it for the safety of community? Is it, is, is it for a deterrent? Uh, we've had the death penalty for a long time in different cultures and we're still killing people and killing each other. So it's not a very good deterrent. So we need to look at it possibly in another direction. And I'll leave you to ponder that for the upcoming week. But to end on a positive note, to end this particular podcast of 542 in the Blue, I encourage you in the coming weeks to be safe, be secure, and in the coming week, do something nice for someone. Somewhere, somehow. When the opportunity to do so arises, you will know. Oh, yes, before I forget, if you have comments or opposing viewpoints, I can be reached at my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can find information about this podcast and others, as well as information about my books, Cop and Coin, Cop and Call, and Cop and Copperhead, as well as my juvenile books the girls from gift girls investigating fantastic things a young person's series along the lines of nancy drew and the hardy boys and so thank you for listening alice my fantastic engineer why don't you close out this particular podcast three two one, you have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. With your host and narrator, Scott Lunsford. If you would like more information on this podcast or Scott's books and links to other sites of interest, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find Scott's books and how to order them. You can also reach Scott through the contact page. This is Alice, sound engineer for 542 in the Blue. Dot today's background music, Eyes Like an Angel by Giorgio Di Campo, used under Creative Commons licenses. Thank you for listening. 2, 1, 0.